This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm here because I'm a mother of three black kings. When is enough is enough? When will my voice be heard? There will never be another George Floyd situation if y'all make sure y'all are unified. I'm Cecilia Lay, the new co-host and producer for Fifth and Mission. This is my hosting debut, and I'm really excited and honored to join the team to help bring you news and perspectives from around the Bay Area. You just heard some voices from our coverage of what felt like a monumental shift in the country. Tuesday marks the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. The video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes galvanized people across the country for months of protests and calls to defund the police. Here in Oakland, the city council faced pressure to cut the police department's budget. In response, it set up a task force to come up with alternatives to policing that would cut the department's budget in half. Today, we're joined by John Jones III. He's been interviewed by The Chronicle before. He's a community activist, a third-generation East Oakland resident, and one of the members of the task force. We wanted to hear what he thinks has or hasn't changed one year later. We started with a video of Floyd's death going viral last summer. Videos of police killing Black people had become common in years prior, and I asked Jones if there was something about this one that felt different to him. Uh, yes, I think it's important to start with just the complexity of the situation. I mean, we were in the midst of COVID and the resultant barriers that it created. Um, so when I first received word of what happened, I personally didn't watch the video in its entirety uh, because it was very traumatizing just to be frank, as someone who has personally experienced police brutality, including the murder of two of my childhood friends by OPD. But I think the thing that stood out for me was how the world responded, because we've had these moments before. Um, but to see the entire world become infuriated, I think that was something that served as a catalyst to address these issues. You know, I have this really distinct memory from that time last summer. I live in Oakland, not far from downtown. And I, I have this memory of standing in the middle of night on my patio, and I have a view of the downtown Oakland um, buildings. And I remember the helicopters flying low over the head, heading towards the protests. And of course, like protests and social justice has been a part of Oakland's DNA and identity throughout history. You know, unlike some of these cities where we saw huge protests all last summer, you know, as someone who was born and raised in Oakland, is there, how would you describe the way that Oakland confronted what was happening last summer? I think, again, just sticking to the theme of complexity, because there was many moving parts of this. Um, on one hand, it's always a good thing when people respond and demand justice. Uh, what was challenging for me as an Oakland native was, first of all, just recognizing that the Black Panther Party formed six decades ago over this issue, or close to six decades ago, right? Um, so this wasn't a new phenomenon as it relates to Oakland. Um, number two, just the makeup of some of the protesters. I felt like Oakland is a woke city. 
we don't need to generate awareness to issues of police brutality here. I really, I issued a call for, you know, white people in particular. If you care about these issues, then raise awareness in your own neighborhoods. Uh, raise awareness at your family gatherings and at your workplace. So for me, I looked at these factors and I just felt like we're, we're beyond protesting at this point. Right. And after last summer's protests, and there were all these calls and attention raised to what defunding the police means and, you know, a- abolish the police. There were so many discussions around that. And we saw, you know, uh, calls to cut the Oakland Police Department's budget. And the city set up a re- reimagining public safety task force, which I know you were appointed as a member of last year. What did that mean to you? And did that feel like actionable change? I think it's important to start with what I call the historical context, as well as the institutional memory of any given issue. So starting with the policing, the the, the background uh, or the context of this issue was the fact that we were experiencing an increase in gun violence in Oakland at a time where it was it has been declining for years and the unwillingness to incorporate that because that is a public safety issue. So many people who I was in contact with with East Oakland, they was alarmed when they was hearing that there is move, movement toward reducing the budget by 50%. They didn't see for themselves what a safety mean for them, right? So for me, I felt it was important to really understand that once again with violence in the 80s and 90s when it reached its apex in Oakland, 1980s, 1990s, uh, the call for more policing actually came from black and brown residents who live in the neighborhoods most impacted by crime and violence. So it was frustrating to watch a process that did not truly include their voices. And then additionally, as it relates to terminology, to semantics, uh, defund the police was confusing to many people. And I think that's partly due to the fact that different people have their own philosophies. Like for example, if you're an abolitionist, then your worldview does not see room or a role for policing. Many people in East Oakland, they, they don't adopt that philosophy. We see what's happening and folks want to feel safe. And in fact, what I was hearing was two primary things. They wanted A, the police to stop harming and killing us. And number two, they want them to actually show up and do their job. So long story short, there should have been room built in for authentic and robust engagement with those residents. And quite frankly, that process did not happen. Some people may say, you know, the result of the George Floyd movement and protests created a shift in culture. And at least so that these kinds of discussions around real solutions or really creating, um, you know, tasks that are centering the experiences of people who actually live uh, these issues that we're talking about. I mean, do you think that cultural shift happened because of this movement? Not only did that cultural shift not happen, what it did was further cement what COVID exasperated, the existing lack of authentic engagement with impacted people. That's always been a real thing. And now with the digital divide, the ability of people to access council meetings or even task force meetings, the ability to share the word. Many folks who were involved in outreach were sharing that due to COVID, it was difficult for them to do outreach. So one of the things I always said was for those who come in the community, we have a level of access that's predicated just by the phone, right? We socialize, we network, we we shop in our own community. And when you see the elevation of the voices of the privilege, as opposed to those who actually live in these communities, 
That's why it created talking points like people were saying things like the police is the most harmful thing. Not if you live in a community where bullets are literally flying through your home and where elders and children are being murdered. So, yeah, it went the opposite way. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's get back to my interview with John Jones III as we mark the one-year anniversary of the police killing of George Floyd and the protest movement it sparked. Jones has been outspoken about a variety of issues that face the Black community, including incarceration and homelessness, things that he experienced personally. I asked him what it was like to see discussions about systemic racism suddenly become mainstream. Again, I think the good thing is anytime there are populations, demographics, who for the first time or infrequently have an opportunity to learn what's happening with other folks, that's a good thing. The challenge again becomes when narratives, when semantics, when language is created that is really centered more on the privileged as opposed to those who are impacted. So let's take a term like, you know, systemic injustice, systemic racism, even white supremacy. What does that mean to people who live in the hood, for example? Right. Like, I think that doesn't go deep enough. It's so important to educate people, to be able to meet them where they at first and foremost and walk them through. We have to build from the ground up and not the top down. A lot of this was a top down approach. It was, oh, well, we get rid of this and invest in that. No, you do it from the bottom up. You meet people where they at and you walk them through intentionally. This is how we can create a viable form of public safety, as opposed to just saying no matter what. the And I've even seen this. I wrap up. I've seen someone say something like they don't know the answer to gun violence. All they know is not the police. That does not make me feel safe living in that community for someone to say that. There are answers to it, and it starts with centering the voices and experiences of those who live in these communities. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have said, in particular, that this was a defining movement, especially for young generation, you know, Gen Z activists and older generations can point to other moments in history like Rodney King or the L.A. riots as sort of this pivotal point for racial justice or at least awareness Uh, Do you think George Floyd's death has affected the younger generation in the same way? And is it closer to this approach that you're describing of being more directly engaged? One of the great things is the impact on the now generation, right, of leadership. A lot of young people were galvanized around this issue. And that was a very important thing for me to challenge again is what are they being taught? What are the lessons learned? I've always shared there's a distinct difference between a moment and a movement. You mentioned Rodney King, Oscar Grant. These were moments. And to me, a lot of ways, George Floyd was eerily similar to that, meaning folks were engaged, folks were protesting. But it wasn't transformative because so many people who went to the protest, all they did was make social media posts, took selfies and said I was here. And then they went back to their life. We have to look at all the issues and everyone should walk away with a clear sense of understanding 
what change is needed. And I'll even add this in. So it goes to, again, just hyper-focusing on the police alone is not transformative. I've always shared that there is, for example, a symbiotic relationship between policing and gun violence. And the gun violence was national, not just in Oakland, the increase. And it wasn't occurring in the vacuum either. So we have to have the courage and the willingness to educate ourselves and educate others on what the true issues are. And most importantly, what are real solutions? It's not just cutting a budget. It's addressing all of it. Right. And what are first steps that you think people who want to have sort of authentic engagement with these issues and the way that you're describing, how would they how would they do that, which is more than putting a bumper sticker or a sign in your window? What where does that what does that look like and where does that begin? Maybe thinking about in Oakland, for example, where as you've mentioned, the city's been gentrified, the demographics have been changing, but there are folks that genuinely want to engage. What what how would you want that to look like? Yes, I appreciate that question. I definitely want to make it clear. The people who I've been talking to in East Oakland, they was unaware of the reimagining public safety task force process. But most importantly, they actually was interested and wanted to be activated. So for me, everything starts with access. So we had a situation due to COVID, obviously we couldn't gather in person, but it takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to, by Zoom, be on a call for eight hours just to wait to speak for one minute. People are raising their lives, they got kids, they have to work. We have to censor them. They should have been to center point of this because the next thing about that is, it's about, again, when I say access, instead of passing out a flyer or making a social media post, that's very limited in terms of engagement, right? You only reason those who are aware of you. I've always shared the nonprofit industrial complex in Oakland at best only represents 2% of the population. I mean, myself, when I got involved with social justice in 2013, I didn't know any of these people whatsoever. And every week it seemed like there's a new organization. Now they're like, there's hundreds of organizations. I'm like, where y'all been? And I'm born and raised in Oakland, 1974. We have to maximize the capital and resources that already exist within our community. And the key thing is deep relationship building. And if I can share one more thing, why it was so important and crucial that I really felt what happened last year was a lost opportunity. I want to remind people of the Montgomery bus boycott, right? Before Rosa Parks, there were five black women, including Claudette Colvin, a 15 year old who was arrested, right? They were part of a lawsuit and they were ultimately successful. But part of what allowed them to be successful was they didn't just ask people to boycott. They actually created carpools. A black woman organized that. So imagine what's happening when you're riding a carpool for five, six, seven days a week. Because again, we're talking about 1955 Alabama. The only jobs that were available to black women for the most part was as a cook, a nanny, or a maid. So that required you to travel from the black community to the white community. So when you're in this car, you know what's happening? You're learning the names of each other's kids. You're learning birthdays. We need deep relationship building because that allows moments to be sustained from moment to moment. If it's transactional, meaning uh, here's a flyer or show up and hear me speak, you might engage them for that hour or two, but that's not deep relationship building. That's the key to any successful movement is that principle. And once again, what happened last year, it was top down. It wasn't bottom up. Do you feel hopeful that meaningful solidarity can be built looking now a year after George Floyd's death and this sort of reckoning that many people have gone through 
what does solidarity mean to you now and what does it authentic authentically feel like? Great question. To be clear and sure, all things are possible. I operate off the principle of faith. I wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning if I didn't think change was possible. And I think it's important to note that we stand on the shoulders of our elders and ancestors. True solidarity is real. Now, I think the, the, the real answer and the real question relates to how do we get there, right? And really, it starts with humility. People have to humble themselves and understand that you only know what you know. And the obverse I always share is you don't know what you don't know. We have to speak truth to power. Here's an example of that. So last year, when I did see some of the protests, I saw a lot of white people holding signs saying, I can't breathe. That deeply disturbed me and grieved me in my spirit. My first initial reaction was, white people, this is not happening to you. You don't have to censor yourself. Humble yourself and also educate yourself because that burden should not fall on communities of colors to have to always educate that because that's an extra burden and trauma. Really educate yourself and then educate those around you. And I really believe that everyone in this country is capable of hearing complex truth. In fact, I had many white people thank me for sharing what I was sharing. Some people view that as disruptive because to your point, there's a false sense of racial solidarity in Oakland. That doesn't truly exist. It might not be as explicit as it is, for example, in Southern California or the East Coast, but it's very real. And we've even seen that now with the, the, the sad, uh, egregious attacks on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We have to stop using tokenized talking points that make us feel good, that gives us a fuzzy, warm feeling. Don't censor our own privilege. Censor those who don't have that privilege to say everything is okie dokie. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I think one thing that I observed through this time and up until now after a year later is that sometimes a lot of these acts around showing solidarity or being aligned with racial justice might come from a place of personal guilt or not being able to reconcile your own privileges. And I do hope that at the very least, you know, this is at least an uncomfortable confrontation that the country or at least people who have started to engage with it will continue to confront their own discomforts. And, you know, for you, what's next? Where do you go from here? You know, as a black man, as an activist who is doing the work of bridging the gaps in the community, as you've described, what what does the next year or couple of years look like for you in terms of where your priorities lie in the work that you do? It definitely lies with being part of a process to help develop the leadership of impacted people. Going back to this concept, transformation can only occur from close proximity. What does that truly mean? I believe in order for injustice and oppression to exist, one must first dehumanize the impacted population because it's easier to oppress someone that you don't see as a human being. So in order to reverse that, it takes centering these human beings with those experiences because they're not, for example, I'm not just formerly incarcerated to your point, I'm also black, I'm also male. And we know on these issues, it impacts every demographic. I'm mindful of the people I can reach. But most importantly, you know, when I share things like I'm formerly incarcerated, that means I have a level of expectation that people would extend to me a certain amount of grace to look beyond my record. We gotta do that with each other. I'm a firm believer in that. And, and moreover, when people talk about resilience, impacted people have dealt with a plethora of issues that has toughened our skin. I think people have to stop being so sensitive and stop feeling like 
they're the smartest people in the room or the only people in the room. No one's going to agree on every issue. The thing I think we should agree on is that we're not each other's enemies. Let's agree on the objectives, right? You might disagree how you get there, but let's make sure we're not intentionally or unintentionally create more roadblocks and exclusion for others, specifically those who are personally impacted. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and being candid and honest. I think an honest discussion is where things will continue to move forward and being really frank about this. So I appreciate you doing that. No problem. Thank you. It's my honor and privilege. Special thanks to King Kaufman for his help with today's show. Another big thank you to our guest, John Jones III. For more coverage and reflections of the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, go to sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.